Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their pride has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel on the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel entered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? In Israel, is it not for you and for your father's household? Saul said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of tribes of Israel, and my family the least of the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall, and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about thirty men. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time, since I said I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place to the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they arose early and ate at, and at daybreak, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on. But you remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. This morning I want to introduce you to a character. And his, or her name, is Super Christian. Maybe, maybe you know Super Christian. Or maybe you don't know Super Christian. I told you, Super Christian is a major character in this morning's sermon. I thought I was stealing this character, Super Christian, from, from a preacher named Bodie Bacham. It turns out I was stealing the character, Super Christian, from Tom Paul Schneider. <laughs> but I want to introduce you to him this morning. The Super Christian is the one, perhaps you know or knew someone like this, the one who all, always does exactly the right thing. Hey, somebody said, somebody who always does exactly the right thing, somebody who says the right word, somebody who stays away from all the wrong stuff and all of the wrong people, somebody who almost like praises themselves or looks down at others because others aren't as good as they are at being Christian, right? I knew several super Christians when I was in middle school and in, in high school, I was not a super Christian. Um, but I knew several super Christians. And this part of the story like makes my heart grieve. This is burdensome to me. Because now I think about all the people who were like super Christians in middle school and in high school as I think back. And, and these super Christians aren't even in church anymore. Right? And they're doing stuff that in middle school and high school could never imagine them doing. And it, it, I can't even talk about it, see? So we all know super Christian. We get into this part of the story. Last week we saw Saul seems like a pretty stand-up guy, doesn't he? Saul, this guy who is about to become king, he's, he's tall, dark, and handsome. He's a looker. He has some leadership skills. He respects his elders. He respects the seer, God's prophet. And supposedly he even respects God himself. Right? At this point in his life. Outwardly all of the right stuff that we would look for in a king, that Israel would, would look for in a king. Yet in chapter 8 Samuel has already shared that this guy this guy is going to be a ravenous wolf for Israel. And we see in the story of Scripture, the perfect example of someone who starts out really, really well with all of the right outward stuff, super Christian, 
someone who just isn't able to finish to finish the race. And so this morning we just want to we want to come humbly to this text. We know that the Christian faith is not a faith of you know works-based righteousness. We can't merit salvation. And we can't become righteous. We've already seen this in First Samuel as we've been walking through walking through the text. But here this morning, I really want us to think about our own lives, pray for those we know who started out really, really well, but now for whatever reason have fallen away from church or or fallen away from the faith entirely. So so this morning, let our hearts be burdened for those who have who have fallen, and we'll talk about exactly what that means when we get to that point in, in the message. I want to look at this text in two parts. First of all, I want to look at verses 15 through through 17, and we're just going to see this simple truth. God chose Saul. God chose Saul. And then I want to look at verses 18 through 27, and, and we're going to see the narrative play out. And we're going to see that Saul is actually honored by God and by and by Samuel. This is the part of the story we are in, the, the beginning of Saul's reign. He starts off really well. Verse 15, Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. Now I want to think about something here. We know the theme of, of the book of 1 Samuel, like you know, one of the themes in all of scriptures, God's sovereignty, God's providence, the fact that God works all things together by his sovereign hand. Here in verse uh, 16, God tells Samuel that God, God is sending this man named Saul. Now I want to think back to the previous part of the story, to last week. We saw Samuel's uh, not Samuel's, Saul's. I'm probably going to do that often this morning. Because Samuel, Saul, they're so similar. So if you hear me say, like, Samuel, but I'm referring to Saul, just know I mean Saul. Okay? I just, uh, my brain's a little scrambled. It's all right. It's fine. Uh, God, you know, like we already said, God doesn't you know, merit our salvation by, by work. So please be graceful this morning as I confuse this too. But Saul, Saul's dad, Kish, lost some donkeys. These donkeys ran away from home. We normally don't let, you know, the dog gets out and runs around the neighborhood or, or gets out and you worry for a little bit. You normally don't think about that being like God's providence at work, God's hand at work. Right? So Saul's dad loses a couple donkeys. These dudes escape. They run away. Kish, Saul, son, will you go and look for these donkeys? We need to get these things back. We need to put them back in the pen. We just need to find them. So Saul, he's with his servant, traveling through the territories, looking for these donkeys, and they can't find the donkeys. And Saul's like, okay, well, you know, evening is coming. We've been gone for a while. Dad's probably going to start worrying about us instead of the donkeys, so we need to get back home. The servant comes up with this great idea, right? The servant says, wait, Saul, there's a seer. His name is Samuel. Seer. God's prophet, one who sees, see her, seer. He says, there's, there's a seer. This man, he can probably tell us where the donkeys are. Saul replies, we don't have anything, we don't have anything to take this man. The servant rifles through the bags. We've got, we've got this, we've got some food here. It's, maybe it's not adequate payment, but we have something to offer. Saul goes, yeah. Yeah, let's go to this seer. And let's see if he knows where the donkeys are. So they go to where the seer is and ask someone there. And they're like, oh yeah, the seer is going to be here at this place at this time. Go and meet him, but, but hurry, because he won't be there at that place very long, right? The seer travels, Samuel was, was traveling. Um, and so we, we see this narrative play out. And it sure seems, when we read through the story, like Saul is the one who is going. Saul is the one doing this work. 
Saul's servant is the one who comes up with this idea to go find the seer. And Saul is the one who affirms it and says, yeah, that's a good idea. And Saul is the one who is figuring out where the seer is. And he's trying to go and find this seer, Samuel. And then in verse 16, when we see God talking to Samuel, God is saying, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Does anyone else find this language interesting? It is the perfect example in the text of Scripture of God's providence. Saul is obviously the one who is seeking out the seer, yet God takes responsibility for sending Saul to the seer, to, to Samuel. Right? I think this is probably true in, in our lives as well. Uh, we, we have our agendas. Every person in this room, we have our agendas, the things we want to get done, the things we want to accomplish, the things we want to succeed at. Here, Saul is, is looking for his father's donkeys, and this is a, a means for him to find these donkeys that, that either his father has misplaced or, or they just run away, and we know what it's like when the pet runs away. Yet God is the one who, who takes the credit for working all of this together. Next time my dog breaks out and runs across the neighborhood, I'm going to be like, God, what are you working together here? I'm, what are, I see you. And we start to see God like at work in everything. Right? We've already seen this through 1 Samuel and the bringing up of Samuel. The dedication of Samuel in the temple. Hannah's prayer, that God worked together the battles of the Israelites leading up to this part of the, of the story. When these donkeys escape from Samuel's father's pen, God is, is there working that together. His hand is in this. And this is what we mean by providence. Right? God wasn't going to Saul in a vision or in a dream or sending an angel and saying, Saul, I want you to go to this place at this time to meet this person, and this person has a message for you. We see God doing that sometimes through the text of Scripture. But in this story, God is working in quite a different way. Instead, God, by His hand, releases the donkeys. Saul goes on the search and comes to Samuel. And this is how Saul and Samuel get connected, and God takes credit for doing this. In our lives, we're following our agendas. In our lives, we're following our agendas. In ministry, I, this is proven to be true in my ministry, right? I will make this plan. This is what I want to accomplish in this amount of time. And this is the way in which I want to accomplish this thing. To date, I have never never seen my plans work out the way that I have planned. <laughs> never. I was going to ask you, how's that working out? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's working out, but not the way I want it to. Right? It's like God is working together all of these agendas that we come up with for ourselves, all these plans that we make. God is actually working that together to accomplish His own will, His own plan, which is far better than ours. Right? So how many of you, show of hands, alright, this is participation, how many of you have ever failed at something, and, there's a second part, <laughs> and felt like all of the time you invested in this thing, just wasted time, right? We listen to the truth of God's providence in all things. Saul's not going to find these donkeys, they're going to return home on their own, right? Saul's going to get home. Well, that was, he's not going to say, well, that was a waste of time. No, God's doing something pretty great here. And so for all people, and I find this very encouraging in my own life, right? For all those people who spend so much time planning something, doing something, making sure things fit together, you know, working on projects, whether it's ministry or secular work or stuff at home, right, with family. You spend your whole life raising somebody. And they do something other than what you raise them to do. If God truly has all providence, and we trust that He is working things together, then there really is no way any of that is a waste of time. Because God is 
actually working together, even our agendas, even the plans that we that we make. So we feel like I wasted all, it's not a waste of time. We are always, always, exactly where God wants us to be, on the path that God has for us, according to God's will, where He wants us to be, with whom He wants us to be. Doing what He wants us to be doing according to His will, because He's working all of that out. In Saul's mind, I'm going to find this here to find in these donkeys. In God's mind, I am bringing Saul to Samuel so that Saul can be anointed as king. And God is working out His own plan here. The other thing that I notice here is, is that as God is talking to Samuel, he tells Samuel that Samuel shall, this is an instruction, this is command, Samuel shall anoint him to be prince over God's people Israel. Now this is a, a term that is different from the term that has been used to describe Saul earlier in this chapter and in chapter 8, right? The, the term used before was the, the Hebrew term for king. You shall anoint him as king, melech. And here, the term prince is used, and this Stuff like this just catches my attention. Oh, I wonder why a different term is used. So I look in the Hebrew to make sure it's really a different term, or for some reason it was just translated differently in a different place. Now the term for king is the Hebrew word melech, and, and the term for prince is the Hebrew term neged. Two different terms. So, of course, then I get to do this cool little word study and look at what the words mean and look at the different nuances. And I love this part, but most other people just find it uninteresting. So I'll skip all of the details. Sorry, brother. I'll skip all of the details there and just and just tell you what a prince is in the Hebrew because it is a little bit different than what we think of a prince being when we refer to a prince in, in English. In the Hebrew, the word for prince means someone who has the office of a, a high official, someone who holds that office, or someone who rules over a people. So this term, prince, can refer to a king, but it can also refer to quite a few other offices that incorporate some sort of power or authority over a national people. And so we can say this, all kings are princes in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew of 1 Samuel. All kings are princes, but not all princes are kings. And so when we see this word, it's just referring to the authority, the type of authority that Saul will have. When he takes this throne that is being prepared through the story within Israel, in this world, in God's creation, for Jesus Christ to sit on later in the story. Still in verse 16, and he, this Saul, will deliver my, God's, people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. So here we, we see one of the jobs that Saul will have, deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. This is essentially the same job that the judges had and that the kings will have after Saul, it just won't, the enemy won't always be the Philistines, right? It will be different enemies. But Saul's job will be to deliver people from the Philistines. Now I find this language to be interesting as, as well in, in the last part of verse 16. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Why has God regarded the people of Israel? Why in this text does he tell Samuel that he is doing this thing? It's a different reason than we have seen before. Because, because the cry of the people has gone to God. And so whereas through 1 Samuel so far we have seen the truth of God's providence and the truth of God's Sovereignty and God working everything together. God is the one who is causing every event. God is the one who is declaring the end from the, from the beginning. Here, God, when he is talking to Samuel, says, I am doing this because the cry of the people has come up to me. Now this is providential 
language, much like what we have seen with Saul coming to Samuel, right? God is working that out, yet Saul is the agent who is actively searching for God. And those pieces fit together quite beautifully. God's providence is causing Saul to do this, but Saul, of, of his will, is doing this thing, but God is the one working it out. It's, that's the providence of God. That's how God works things out regarding his providence. Now here we have seen God has even God has even predicted this, right? From 200 years earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 17 when God says there will be a time of the judges and there will be a time of the kings and when it's time, Israel, you shall ask for a king like other nations. God has already predicted that this will happen. He has instructed the people of Israel to search for a to search for a king. He is he is, he is given the parameters by which the people of Israel should look for a king, what sort of king they should look for. And this was prophecy, God saying, this will happen according to my will, this is my plan. Yet in this verse, he says that he is doing this because, because the cry of the people has gone to him. And so which, which is it? There seems to be some sort of incoherence in the story, some sort of contradiction. Is God the agent, the person working all of this out, planning all of this, declaring the end from the beginning? Or are the people crying out and not answering? Which is it? It would be really, really difficult to reconcile those two things, right? Unless we talk about the providence of God and investigate the providence of God in all things. Right. So God, who works all things together, even the agendas of people, is also working out just the fact that the people are crying out to Him. God has done this. God is the one who moves people's hearts and people's minds. God is the one bringing Saul to Samuel. God is the one doing this according to His plan and His will. It is also the case because God is the one who has all providence. It is also the case that he is doing this because their people's cry has gone to him. And we can't reject one or the other because the Bible gives us both. Right? Because it's difficult for us sometimes to just reconcile that in our minds. Too often, I think we choose, well, I believe in a sovereign God. So... No, God's just working everything out. I'm not going to pay attention to anything else, right? And that can be very tempting because we do believe in God's sovereignty and we believe in His providence and we do believe that He works out all things. And so we also believe that according to His providence, He's working together that people come to a place where they cry out to Him. We saw this in 1 Samuel as well. Israel lost the battle to the Philistines. So the people come up with this great idea. Oh, let's bring the ark and the ark will deliver us. Will they lose again? The Philistines capture the ark of God. When they capture the ark of God, take the ark of God into their territory, set the ark of God before their false god Dagon. Dagon, you know, eventually ends up decapitated and his limbs severed, laying prostrate before the ark of God. God has, God has killed the false god Dagon. Symbolic, it wasn't actually out there, just a statue. God begins to oppress the Philistines. God does, the Israel is not doing this, God is doing this. The Philistines are getting sick, they're getting boils on their skin, something that probably looks like leprosy. God is oppressing them. They want to get rid of the ark, so they, they send the ark back to Israelite territory. And what do the Israelites do when the ark gets back into Israelite territory? Well, they start worshiping God in a way that looks religious, but is actually dishonoring to God, and some people die because they mishandled the ark. Right? And so these Israelites send the ark away to another Israelite territory, and the Israelites in this territory treat the ark with honor, worship God in a rightful manner. God brings the people. God brings the people to repentance, and we see how the story plays out. How God does these things to bring people to a place where they yearn for Him. 
and desire to they repent before before God. The same thing is happening in this text. The people are crying out to God. Why? Because God Himself brought them to a place where they cry out to God. And then God, who brought them to this place, also answers their prayer according to a plan that He has had in motion for at least 200 years if we look back to Deuteronomy, 600 years if we look back to Genesis chapter 49 and read the prophecy there when Jacob is blessing his, his children. Verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. So God, by his providence, sent Saul. Saul has no clue what is about to happen. Saul has no clue that he's about to become king of Israel. He's just out looking for some donkeys. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, a few a few days from, from this point, he's, he's going to be crowned king. And like, how does this only by God's providence does something like this happen, right? God points to Saul and says, Samuel, that's the guy. Tall, dark, and handsome over there. That's him. That's the guy you shall anoint as, as king. Verses 17 through 27, we're actually going to see that Saul is honored by God's prophet Samuel. Verse 18, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. This is one of the group. Scripture is so full of like hilarious things. Saul finds Samuel and asks Samuel where Samuel is. Samuel, can you tell me where the seer's where is the seer? Where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. This isn't what Saul is expecting. I just want to know where my dad's donkeys are, and now I'm going to go eat with the prophet. And in the morning I will let you go. In the morning? How far are these donkeys going to run by morning? This is, this is great, right? This is a good story. And in the morning I will let you go. And I will tell you all that is on your mind. I'll give you the answers you seek. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them. Alright, so the hilarity continues, right? I will give you the answers you seek, but don't seek to find where your donkeys are. That's the whole reason I'm here, Samuel, prophet guy. Do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? So what Samuel is doing here, it's like Saul. Guy chosen by God has no idea what's happening. Saul says, Come eat with me, stay the night, you can go in the morning. I will give you the answers you are looking for, but you're looking for the wrong answers. And then he asks two very probing questions, directing Saul's mind to the types of answers he should be looking for according to God's will. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel, all the good stuff that Israel has to offer. Who is this for? Oh, Saul's having to think about some real things now. Not just finding a couple donkeys, but all of a sudden, who, who gets to inherit Israel? This is interesting. And then Samuel continues, Is it not for you and for all your father's household? Are you not the one Saul who will inherit all the good things of Israel? These are the things that you need to be thinking about now. Think about these questions. Don't let it keep you up tonight. <laughs> Katie's laughing at me. There's a story there. I will share. <laughs> you bet it kept Saul up that night. Right? What's the same person wouldn't be kept up at night? Well, give me the answers I seek. Don't think about the donkeys. Instead, think about the fact that, that my family 
might inherit all of Israel. That's, those are some weighty thoughts for Saul. I think God does this with us too. We're talking about the agendas we have. When you came to salvation, think about your own story. When you came to Christ, when I came to Christ, what were our agendas? <laughs> was it something like, oh, I don't want to go to that terrible fiery place, so I need some insurance? Did we just grow up in a in a Christian home? And so naturally, yeah, I'm going to be a Christian. Was it something else like? Uh, maybe not today, but sometime in the past, it's socially acceptable to be a Christian, so I need to be a Christian. My friends are Christians, and so I want to be a Christian too. I want to go to heaven, and so I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to trust in Christ because, because this is how I succeed or accomplish something in some way in this life or in or in the next. What was our agenda? And I can share a little something about mine. It wasn't because I wanted to honor God and glorify Him as holy. That wasn't the answer that I had when I came to Christ. When I came to Christ, it was entirely selfish. Yes. I saw that I might need Christ to do something with my life that I wanted to do. And for me, it wasn't necessarily fire insurance, right? Hell didn't scare me. Should have. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily, like, super excited about the prospect of just singing forever. So heaven didn't excite me. But I, I came to Christ because I saw that this might be advantageous for this life. Okay, I will come. You've convinced me. I will come to you. It was selfish. It was my agenda. Then conviction came. Then you know, after being born again, I can see a little bit who God is, His holiness, and then I desired to do what he wanted me to do. Right? And this is my, it's part of my testimony, part of my story. I don't know what yours is. Some of you I do, some of you I don't. But this is, this is how God is even working here with Saul. Saul's out finding some donkeys. And then God says, wrong question. He says it's through Sam. Wrong question. Think about who will inherit all of the good things in Israel, all those things that are desired. You're coming to me because you think having a relationship with me has some advantage in this life. You're thinking about the wrong thing. You're coming to me because you're desperate, because you're sick. You're thinking about the wrong thing. You're coming to me because you want to experience some sort of great religious thing and have the spiritual, it's the wrong question. Let me teach you about the things you ought to set your mind on. God does this. Well, we don't have to feel bad about coming selfishly before God or praying for the things that we pray for, right? Just understand that when we come to God, God's response isn't, okay, let me give you exactly what you asked for. Well, a good father knows better than that, right? A good parent knows better than that. Now, God says, Okay, sir. Let's celebrate that you are coming to me. Now let me teach you things that are worthy of your thoughts. Things that you can set your mind on. God does this when He changes us. That's why, that's why our concern here isn't to be relevant, right? Just to preach the Word of God. Because the Word of God not only gives us answers, but it teaches us questions that we should probably be asking that are more beneficial in the world than the questions we often ask. Verse 21. Saul replied, I don't know if Saul is 
intimately familiar with Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob tells his sons, Judah, you know, the king will come from the tribe of Judah, and Benjamin, that the tribe of Benjamin will be a ravenous wolf. I don't know if he is familiar with, with that, at least in an intimate way. Of course, they heard the law read all the time. So Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, inadequate, my family doesn't have a name. If you were to run for any political office here in the United States, they will transplant Saul and his family to the 21st century United States of America. If Saul was to run for a political office, he might have the looks and, and, and he might have, you know, the, the good old boy demeanor. But his family doesn't have the connections. He hasn't made a name for himself. Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family, the least of all families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Samuel, prophet of God, seer, why are you honoring me? Why are you asking me these questions? Why are you inviting me to me? Why do you want me to stay overnight? Why are you putting questions in my mind like, like my family has no reputation in Israel but inherit all the good things of Israel? How, how would this even be possible? I can't make a name for myself. I'm not in a place to do that. Why? And this is the question that Saul asks Samuel. Verse 22, then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall, gave them a place at the head of those who were invited who were about 30 men, the head of the table, this great place of honor. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you, concerning which I said to you, set it aside, this consecrated portion, the set aside portion, the portion set aside for the one person being honored. Nobody else gets this portion, the portion that has been set aside, the choice portion, whatever they were eating. Then the cook took up the leg. Oh, there it is. That's what they're eating. Then the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time. Since I said, I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. You gotta say roof or roof. Yes. Yes. And they arose early. And at daybreak, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose. And both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. Samuel is about to be very explicit with Saul about God's plan, about God's will, about the place that God has for Saul in God's kingdom, in God's nation, Israel. Saul comes from a place of humility. Saul's a good old boy. Saul's agenda was different from God's, but God used that agenda to bring Saul to himself. But God is about to choose a king for the nation of Israel, or rather, has already chosen. And now Saul is about to be anointed. We think of Saul's life in and we already know the outcome. Samuel told us in, in chapter 8, this guy will be a ravenous wolf. He will take your sons and your daughters to serve as his servants. He will take your cattle. He will take your farms to give to his soldiers. He will draft a military for himself. Samuel shared all of this. This is the stuff that Saul will do as, as king. 
And the text seems to point us to the fact that he will be ruthless when the time comes for him to do that. But that in no way describes him in this part of the story. Saul is starting off so well. Yet he will not finish in a way that is honoring to God. He will depart from this demeanor that he has. If he practices any sort of religion in the ways of God or things that honor God, he will depart from those things by the time David is anointed as the next king. Saul starts off well and doesn't even finish the race. God has God takes him out eventually, right? Because of his sins against God. Now I don't know. I don't know. You know, reading from the text up to this point, if, if Saul was one of God's chosen spiritual people, if he was saved. He was atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. The text doesn't give us that information leading up to this point. But we can take this and we can apply it to maybe those who have departed from the faith or from the church in our day. Right? The application is here. This is a sin known as apostasy. That once I confessed Christ, now I do not. Or, once I really thought I had a relationship with Christ but I've fallen out of church and I've fallen away from things that are godly. This is called apostasy. A leaving of the faith or a a no longer practicing the things of the faith. And many of us, myself included, we have family and we have friends who are described this way. Used to be super Christian but now are not Christian at all. And Jesus taught about this, so I'm not going to take this narrative and from this narrative extrapolate all sorts of doctrine that we're not looking to Scripture for. No, let's, let's look to what Jesus actually teaches about apostasy in His church. Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 through 14. Of course, in context here, Jesus is talking with His disciples and, and he's talking about the end times. In the end times, this is what you will experience. He's talking to his disciples. And in chapter 24, verse 34, Jesus explains that these things will be experienced before this generation, the generation of his disciples, passes away. Before this generation is, is gone. And so all of these things that Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter 24... We know that we are partakers in this time that Christ is describing. Because He told His disciples, these things will begin in your time before you pass away, before this generation passes. And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 through 14, this is what Jesus teaches His disciples. At that time, this end time that we are partakers of in now, at that time, many apostasy. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and will hate one another. Do you see this? When you observe the world? I seem to see this. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. So we see that the source of this falling away, this great betrayal and this great hatred The source of this is false teaching, unsound doctrine, false prophets that are rising up and misleading many. That's the source according to Christ. And in verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Because people no longer care about sound doctrine, about the law of God. Love will grow cold. So sound doctrine is even the source of like genuine love. Amen. And then verse 13. But the one who endures, endures is an important word there, the one who endures to the end, 
he will be saved. Endures what? He who endures the great apostasy, if we look at the immediate context. He who endures the falling away and lawlessness and the love of many growing cold. He who endures. He who sticks with it. Seems to be the teaching of Christ here. And endures isn't this happy-go-lucky attitude. And you picture endurance, you picture somebody like walking through a blizzard. You know, and getting to this destination. That's endurance. Running a race. And even though you had that sharp pain right below, you know, the floating rib right there. Ah, endurance. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So it's falling away because of false teaching, unsound doctrine, a misrepresentation of God's gospel. It's the falling away that produces hatred, cold, love, stony hearts in the people. Exactly what we see today in our own community, in our own, in our own county, in our own state, in our nation, on this earth. This is what we see. The great apostasy. It's, it's upon us. Right? Fueled by false teaching. People wanting to get a name for themselves. Well, notice here that he who endures to the end, he will be saved. We talked about what we endure through. We endure with what? What do we endure with? Well, look at the immediate context here. It seems we don't endure without works. The text doesn't say that. Maybe that's how we hear endurance and hear endurance in the Christian faith. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Now I have to do all the right stuff. That's not what the text gets at. The text seems to indicate that we endure with simple belief in Christ. We endure with simple belief in Christ. And we endure with sound doctrine, which is a gospel of grace and not a gospel of works. According to Jesus. We are the ones who need help here, not God. Not that our works contribute anything. But God must save his people. We look down to verse 22 here in Matthew 24. And Jesus is teaching, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. If God were to continue letting us live in this state, every single one of us would fall. Right? Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, elect, those chosen by God, those saved by God, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God will put an end to it for the sake of His people, His chosen, eternal, spiritual people, His family, His children. So even in this text, we see that God protects is elected from falling away. And this whole thing has to do with God, right? By the mercy of God, by the grace of God. Not by any work that we can muster up. Not by any trying of our own. This is why super-Christian always falls away from the faith. The whole super-Christian thing is a myth, right? More and more, I... I uh, I hear from Muslims who want to read my blog, which is it's really cool. And they're reading about Jesus and they're reading about the New Testament. Muslims really like reading about the New Testament, which is nice. So I've been diving more and more into Muslim teachings, the different aspects of Islam. You know, they have just many denominations as Christianity has. So I've been diving into some Muslim teaching. Everything that I've seen, everything that I've seen coming out of the Muslim community, coming out of Islam, teaching the great people of faith, the super Muslims they have, 
everything coming out of there. Sounds like 99.9% of the stuff coming out of Christianity. It sounds exactly the same. Do this thing. And you will accomplish this thing. Follow Sharia in paradise. Pray a prayer when you say Honor God and you will please Him. Obey the law and you will have a place with God. It's like every religion on earth. That's what they teach. Using different language. That's it. The Bible gives us something different, doesn't it? It places all of the authority, not just some, 100% of the authority in God's hands. We call it providence. We call it sovereignty. Such that God is in charge of our salvation. And to us in this room, to those in our community, to Muslims who will read this, who will watch this, who listen to this later, here's people of any other religion. Here's what I have to say. If you are relying on your works to get you there, if you're trying to be super Christian or super Muslim or super Hindu or super whatever, to get you there, you'll fail. Because we all said it all short of that's So we wonder why there's a great apostasy. It's because super Christian burns out. I can't believe it. Muster will. It doesn't work. The only hope we have is God. By his mercy, save us by Christ. Again, we are the ones who need help in this relationship, not God.